HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Don Perry, who has long been creating menus and trends as a recipe developer and all-around food stylista. From food editor at Martha Stewart's Everyday Food and Bon Appetit to driving culinary content at Marley Spoon Meal Kit Delivery Service, now food director at Real Simple, Perry is able to wrap her head around the many expressions of a single ingredient, taking careful consideration in culinary know-how to compose something both complex and approachable. And her latest project, which we'll talk about later, Short Stack Edition's Cucumber, illustrates just that, taking the humble gourd and showing its scope of recipes. Welcome on. Hi, thanks for having me. So I was asking before the show, like, where are you from? Where's your culinary heritage? And you, you tell me, Baltimore, but you were never a crab person. And I, I find that so sad because my fondest memories of going up and down the Chesapeake, you know, on a boat, is that you get to deboard. Go get really messy with some crabs mm-hmm. and hammers and a whole bunch of beer. They can get back onto the waters. And it's just such a joyous thing. But when in your life did you return to that? You know, I think it was, um, I was going to say spring break. That's not right. Senior <laughs> week. Um, so that would have been 1997 to date me. But um, that was like my first experience with like the bucket of beers and really getting to know like the ritual of the crab feast and what I had been missing my my entire childhood. <laughs> so I know it's a little embarrassing that we didn't do the crab feast thing in my own house, but um, 
I'm very fond of it. Yeah. But you, you mentioned tradition. And was that an important part of your kind of eating lifestyle, your, your kind of home cuisine? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't come from a family of, or from a, my immediate family is not, are not passionate cooks. You know, we love to eat, but there was, meals were always the marker. And the extended family, of course, like we got together for Thanksgiving and we still have, you know, quite a big gathering and Christmas. And there are still recipes that we look to at each of those meals. Um, so we're, I would say we're food people, but like, I don't come from a family of foodies. So my dad's always like, I can't believe that you're a cook. (laughs) (laughs) That my kid's a cook. Yeah. I mean, what part of kind of that path did they realize you were becoming one? Or when did you personally realize you wanted to go towards this? Well, again, sort of aimlessly searching after college, I... Um, my bachelor's, I have a fine arts degree in film production of all things, um, and ended up doing an AmeriCorps program, uh, in San Francisco after college. And, you know, I was living in the Bay area and I was doing conservation based education. So we were planning community gardens and talking about sustainability and everyone is so food obsessed in San Francisco, um, that it's hard to avoid uh, not becoming like that. And, So I got to the point where I realized I had to go back to school for something. And I was always pretty good with my hands, and I wanted to do something creative. So I thought, well, I guess I'll go to culinary school, (laughs) kind of on a whim, but it turned out to be a really good fit. Yeah. But do you go to culinary school at that point in your life with the intent of becoming a cook, a chef that opens a restaurant, or can you have seen this other kind of role for yourself? Yes and no. I knew very certainly that I didn't want to work in a restaurant. Like, it's too competitive. It's tough for women, knowing I wanted to have a family down the road any day now. (laughs) Um, So I knew that restaurants weren't going to be my thing, but I didn't, I still didn't really know what direction food was going to take. But as I do, I just was kind of winging it um, and it worked out. And so I did end up doing some time in restaurants. which I think is great. I think any cook needs to do time in restaurants. You learn so, so much. Um, I'm a bad line cook, but um, I did learn so much in those few years that I was in restaurants. I started in pastry and then moved on to savory. This is at a restaurant called Quince in San Francisco. Shout out to Mike Tusk, um, who's still doing amazing things there. Um, and then I worked as a pastry chef in that restaurant in Baltimore called Gertrude's that's attached to the Baltimore Museum of Art. And then I, I ended up, um, working as a private chef for a family in the Hamptons. This is like the short version. Um, and somebody put me in touch with Ina Garten. We had coffee. Yeah, we've heard of that woman before. Yeah. (laughs) Ina had me over for coffee. Incidentally, the whole area had lost power. So we had water actually, but, um, she suggested that. I look in editorial. She was like, I don't know. That could be a really good fit for you. And that was 11 years ago. That's amazing. You know, editorial, is. does that mean, I feel like today it means something different than True. it did a decade <laughs> ago. But it doesn't mean waxing poetic about what's Instagrammable. It means something a little more. In, you ruminate over these ingredients and recipes and figure out what depth they have as far as uh, stories and narrative and, and some humanistic qualities. And for me, it's always been like, how does this recipe, this ingredient, this preparation fit into a real life? Because I know that most people aren't 
food obsessed and most people don't live their lives um, focused on food all the time the, the way we do. Um, and I think that is like from my family. I know they've got a lot going on. And so I always want to present food in a way that is really approachable, um, that isn't standoffish. Because um, the whole point is like to eat and to feed one another and to make it easy and pleasurable. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of like my my entry in. Um, but I think I've always had that on the mind just to keep it easy. Yeah. But do you remember your first complex recipe that you pitched to an editorial something and they're like, maybe dumb it down a little bit? I think the opposite. I think they were always like a little more <laughs> like turn it to 11. Yeah. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I think when I first went to Real Simple, um, having come from Martha Stewart, there was a little bit of like a little less how about, can we do it in one sheet pan? <laughs> that kind of thing. So you start to consider things like dishes and the amount of actual time it takes a real person to chop something. Um, so you have to kind of turn off a lot of your cook's brain when you're developing for the masses. But, but I like it. I think that's part of the challenge. I mean, is it the same across the board when you're working with Martha Stewart Everyday Food or Bon Appetit or Real Simple now? How does it iterate? Like, how, how, how does food content change from magazine to magazine? I think it's very much about knowing your audience. And they are definitely different. I mean, even at Real Simple Now, our web audience is very different than our print audience. Um, and just, I had one editor who once said, you have to love the reader. And that's something that I always think about. And whether it's like you're writing for web or writing for print, um, as soon as you start to like feel conflict with that person, you're not trying to serve them anymore. Um, so I do always just keep that in mind, whoever it may be, whether it's like a super avid home cook who's willing to spend all day in Chinatown seeking out specific ingredients or somebody who's like just going to Safeway. You got to kind of know where you're, where you're headed and who you're talking to. I think it was on Bone App. You did show a little disdain, not for your audience <laughs> per se, but for your life as a recipe de developer and in a test kitchen, it was called It's Complicated, mm -hmm. right? And I love reading it. It's about your life as a test kitchen cook and your relationship with food, but that your fantasy is eating exactly what you want to eat. Can you explain what that means? Sure. And at the time, especially at B8, like, it's really, we were grinding recipes and cooking hard all day at that time. And now I actually, I cook quite a bit less in my current job so I can eat more of what I want. But on those days when we were developing, say three different stories, it could be a baking story. Let's say, well, let's talk Thanksgiving. So it could be pie, turkey, and mashed potatoes. So we're talking like kind of the whole Thanksgiving meal in a day. And it's not just you. Everyone else in the kitchen is also cooking that amount of food. So you've got, um, entire menus of things that need tasting and tweaking. And that starts at like 10 a.m. and it doesn't stop till 4.30. So like mealtime is blurred. It doesn't really exist. Um, and you stop responding to cravings and just kind of deal with like, all right, I got to start with the brownies. So I'm, I always have to eat breakfast because I'm like a blood sugar person. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to just have like a little fruit to get me going, but I can't overdo it on the sugar because I know this dessert story is coming. So you just have to kind of bargain with yourself. Um, 
but yeah, it's funny because now sort of on the other side of that, I realize I have trouble deciding what I want because <laughs> for so long it was just like, Oh, whatever's because here. Time is so precious now. It's <laughs> like, I, I get to choose. Yes. <laughs> and, and the choices are overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it's the opposite of, you know, it was just recently July 4th and Nathan's hot dog eating competition that I'd love to see an eating competition, which is a slow burn and see how much <laughs> like you have to eat 500 calories every 30 minutes. It's kind of like power hour for food. Right. No. And I have such an issue with eating contests. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> well, I'll, I'll hold uh, the, the tray <laughs> yeah. of cupcakes by the yeah. door. We were just, we'll save that for another time. We're, we're actually going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about meal kits, which seem cool. to kind of be taking over the food space. But then, of course, end with cucumbers, and you'll know why soon. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Don Perry, the food director of Real Simple. And that doesn't mean that you're just saying, that food goes here, that food goes there. What, what does a food <laughs> director <should>. do? <laughs> so I, you get to finally use that film degree. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I oversee all of our food content, print and digital. So um, we actually have quite a big team in Birmingham, Alabama, um, that develop some of our recipes for us. We're actually like shooting grilled pizza down there today, so I'm communicating with them. Um, but then we do a lot of development and video stuff up here in the New York office. So, um, yeah, we're steeped in it. And again, like Real Simple is very cool um, because it isn't just food. So it's very interesting to sit in meetings and have non-food people pitch you food ideas and realize like, oh, I've got to get my head out of my ass. Yeah. Like, I figure everybody knows about whatever it is. Well, I mean, with Marley Umaboshi, Spoon. Yeah. you know, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the, we're batting 100% yeah. here. <laughs> uh, Marley Spoon, though, on the other hand, you know, this meal delivery kit, which I, I've done a couple of them, uh-huh. just kind of test them out because I want to see more so what people like you are thinking when you kind of construct a recipe mm-hmm. and, and package and give the instructions. Um, what kind of audience were you talking to then? Obviously, it's people that were willing to accept what you were kind of prepping out for them and, and, and be excited about cooking. But do these people know anything about food or are you trying to teach them? 
my feeling was and still is that um, meal kit delivery services are really good for new cooks. So like young couples or young families with little kids, um, you know, most have a couple's plan and a family plan. Um, and I do, I just think that it's a great way, whether you are, um, you know, you've got a new kitchen and a new routine and a new life stage. It's a great way to kind of get in and, and start to exercise those muscles. Um, what I can tell you from both from Marley Spoon and from Real Simple and Everyday Food, um, those two brands specifically is meal planning is a huge challenge for people and it's a real barrier to just get people to cook. And so I think they end up leaning on takeout, getting pizza, shopping the salad bar, that kind of thing. Um, and these meal kits just like lay it out for you. You're going to have chicken on Monday and (laughs) pasta on Wednesday. And if you want to cook on Thursday, we've got a great vegetarian option for you. So I think that makes it really helpful. Um, Martha and Marley Spoon, you know, it would seem you'd send whole ingredients. So none of the chopping's done for you. Sometimes people would complain about that. <laughs> and our feeling was always like, you know, like you need to learn to chop an onion. <laughs> so, um, yeah, largely couples and young families. Also, some empty nesters um, were a big part of the clientele. Um, but it was very, very interesting to be sort of on the other side um, of sort of recipe development and getting very direct feedback from the customers about what they liked, what they didn't like. What, what didn't they like? Because I also want to know, like, what were the most popular and least popular dishes that came out of there? You know, it's funny. When we started the family plan, we were definitely gearing things more towards kid-friendly. You know, we'd have, like, a pizza quesadilla or, um, like, burger salad, that kind of thing. And when people could see what was offered on the family plan, you could only shop from whatever you had subscribed to and people would be like why don't why can't we get the pizza quesadilla (laughs) why can't i order off the children's menu like oh everyone's actually 10 and just (laughs) and just wants to you know feed their cravings um but most folks wanted more um which was another interesting thing like for us as developers who are eating all day it is sort of hard to gauge like, okay, what is a reasonable plate of food? Cause even when we go out to dinner, it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a little, we're putting together a meal out of lots of dishes. Um, so there was a lot of like, we need more food, uh, which was interesting. So we realized like, okay, we're going to send a cup of rice, no matter what for two people, even though yeah. the serving size is a quarter cup. And then, you know, we'd run, um, nutrition on all of the recipes and then people would get very upset about the, the nutritional analysis, it's like, well, do you want enough food or do you want to actually know how much, how many calories are in a half cup of rice? Yeah, I, I kind of like <laughs> letting them figure it out for themselves. And this leads me into an amazing piece you did for Real Simple, the six things you always have in your freezer. Um, and those six things are sausage, vegetables, berries, nuts, puff pastry, and sliced bread. But they're for varying different things. Yeah. You know, uh, and this is how I think about food and this is how my fridge is kind of set up. Like, I... I I have my mise en place. Uh-huh. I, have, I have my ingredients prepped or not, and I can construct a dish out of that. And I feel like if you give people these six things, like sausages for soup or grilling or vegetables for pasta or veggie dip or berries for smoothies or no-churn sorbets, you're making them, you're equipping them with some kind of education, but you're also 
making them make their own decision. Yeah, I mean, the well-stocked pantry, I, I cannot... I cannot speak highly enough about it. And I think shopping is a real skill. And so it's like shopping for the well-stocked pantry. Like those two things, if you can learn to shop your supermarket, I don't care what supermarket it is, like fancy, bodega, whatever. If you can learn how to take advantage of what's there, you are golden. And and they're really, you know, it's like the six things I have in my freezer and like the six things I always have in my pantry. And it's largely what we eat. Yeah. I mean, then looking at some of the recipes you develop, bucatini with butter, roasted tomato sauce, you really don't need much. And I mean, let me say it again, because it reads so well. Bucatini <laughs> with butter, roasted tomato sauce. I Meryl, mean, that's for yeah. you. <laughs> it's, I mean, it just sounds delicious. And it's not really complex, as long as you have the shit you need to make it. Yeah, and it's really true. And that one, I think we added anchovies to like give it a little bit of complex umami, but like you don't need it. And that's the other thing. Once you start to cook and really like utilize your pantry, and you know, it's sort of like utilize your pantry and a little seasonal thing that you get on the way home, you it really opens up um, a world of eating and a world of flavors for you. Then how do you do that with cucumbers? <laughs> I mean. I'd like everyone listening to kind of picture their ideal cucumber dish. And I don't think it's much past pickles or raw cucumber, you know, chopped up. And then how many recipes do you have in this short stack edition? I think it's 24. So how do you start a project like that? You know, it's funny because when I initially pitched the short stack family, um, I think my other, the other idea I was excited about was cauliflower, which thank God they passed on. <laughs> Because like that would have been just like a rough few months. But one of the reasons I love cucumbers is I never get tired of eating them. Um, they're sort of like potato chips in that way. Like you can just keep going. Um, but yeah, I mean the cucumber salad that my family made growing up is is still my ideal cucumber dish. Um, and so that was sort of my jump off, which is largely it's you know cucumbers, vinegar, dill, a little red onion. That's it. Um, but it was sort of, okay, how do you bring those like cooling, refreshing flavors and introduce them into other dishes? I love that you give the traditional like bread and butter, but then there's also an Indian spiced. You know, uh, there are drinks, uh, cucumber, celery, agua fresca, but then obviously a little booze added yeah. in makes it that much nicer with a cucumber infused gin and tonic. So when you're trying to create a project like this, showing kind of the... Um, you know, gamut of what a cucumber or a single ingredient can do. Do you start at like opposite poles and work in or how do you categorize all the different kind of flavors and textures of that ingredient? I think in this case, I mean, in any sort of package or story, you want to offer some amount of variety. Cucumbers are a little challenging because like you can't do a ton of sweet stuff with them. Like you can't like puree them into a cake um, or at least I did not find that to work, but maybe someone out there, you can figure that out. Um, email me directly. <laughs> but um, so it was like a little limiting in that way. But otherwise, I just think like, okay, I, I know I want some hot dishes. I know I want some cold dishes. I know I want to cook cucumbers, even though even when I started, that wasn't something I had done a ton of. Um, I knew I wanted some drinks. I knew I wanted some sweet stuff. And like, okay, how do I work that in without it being totally alienating or weird? Um so I kind of had those head notes. I knew I wanted like some saucy, snacky things. Um, and then I just kind of tried to fill in. And then you start with like, what do I want to eat? Um, 
And then you realize like, oh, it's all the same stuff. <laughs> and then you start looking around and, um, you know, thinking about great dishes you've had out or that your friends have made and, and start riffing on those. Well, I'd love to say that under hot, I kind of like that hot is both spicy and baked. So because you have the spicy cucumbers with beef and black vinegar, and I'll mm-hmm. have to ask you about the vinegar aspect in a second. Uh-huh. But butter baked cucumbers. And again, I've never baked a cucumber before. Yeah, and honestly, I hadn't either. And I was like, I think this could work. <laughs> and I dug around a little, and it is true that Julia Child has a, a baked cucumber recipe in the world. It's so fussy. There's so much chopping. It like takes a ton of time. They're definitely, and having not made it, I can just tell you like they're definitely crazy mushy at the end. And I just thought like butter's good, cucumbers are good. Like this could work together. So yeah, you just split some Persians, butter, shallot, some herbs, bake them, and they're delicious. That sounds wonderful. Then on the other hand, the spicy cucumbers with beef and black vinegar. Do you approach that from? I like these flavors. I'm assuming like a little more Chinese yeah. Szechuan or cucumbers are good with vinegar. Let's just change the vinegar. Um, just about the black vinegar specifically. Yeah. Um, I just find black vinegar so much punchier than the other stuff I usually have in my pantry. And I've made that dish with just like rice vinegar and it's not the same. Um, but yeah, I do like those flavors. I know, you know, I think of food a lot. It, um, in high notes and low notes. Um, and I think black vinegar is kind of an interesting one because I think it plays high and low. So like beef is obvious, not obviously, but beef is a low note. Fat is a low note. Cucumbers are high. Um, fresh, tender herbs are high. And that dish gets like basil and mint at the end. Um, so it's just about kind of balancing those things. I also love what you were saying before. There are these like dishes that you kind of go back to and I, I see it in panzanella and guacamole uh-huh. because you could win anybody over with yeah. well except for the gluten people yeah. uh, uh, with a bread salad uh-huh. and I mean an avocado mm-hmm. yeah I mean the panzanella thing people who know me and people who have cooked with me will tease me about my love of croutons I mean I'll do anything for a crouton <laughs> and so panzanella development is actually risky because you really have to know like okay I gotta set this many aside before you've eaten like half of the tray of the croutons before they go in the salad but um yeah and the guacamole thing I tell the story in the short stack but when I was in culinary school I was making guacamole one day for a staff meal and I was going for it. I was like putting tomatoes in and onions and all these different ingredients. And my friend Michael came over and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm making guacamole. He's like, that's not guacamole. That's dip. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, guacamole is avocado, cilantro, lime, maybe a little jalapeno. And I was like, oh. And that is really how I make my guacamole. And so it felt sort of bad to throw the grilled cucumbers in there. But I think they work. You know, uh, again, recipe development uh, and and being in the role that you're in, are there certain ingredients nowadays that you are either sick of or that you want to push upon the general public? I'm, like, really tired of matcha. (laughs) I just think, like, my mom isn't going to be into it. And she's a lot of the times my barometer. But, like, loves kale, loves all the ancient grains, um... 
but that's one that I'm kind of tired of. We can get green in other ways. Yeah. And we can get green by going to cucumbers, <laughs> even though there are cucumbers that aren't green as well. Yeah. Um, definitely check out Short Stack Editions Cucumbers by Don Perry, all the wonderful stuff she's doing at Real Simple. And check out the It's Complicated, a test kitchen's cook food relationship status, still archived on Bon App because it's <laughs> kind of a wonderful read. Uh, thank you again for being on. Thanks for and, having me. Uh, hope to have you back on. I want to talk more about this high-low thing. Someday. Great. Yeah. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Durkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to MoFad for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tattashore Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. What do linoleum, bed sheets, and nutritional supplements have in common? They're all made from flax. Flax is an amazingly versatile food and fiber crop. In fact, it's one of the oldest fiber crops in the world, known to have been cultivated in ancient Egypt and China. If it seems like flax is good for everything, that's because it is. Its Latin name is usititissimum, which means most useful. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're getting flaxy. On this episode, we're going to talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network about all things flaxseed. Then, vegan low glycemic load blogger and chef Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, you heard right, will give us a recipe that puts flaxseed meal to good use. So stay tuned. You know, I don't think it's fair that cotton is called the fabric of our lives when flax is clearly the superior crop. Flax? What the flax is that? Okay, Jordan, flax is a plant that has all kinds of uses, including textiles. It's what they use to make linen. Linen? That just makes me think of old hippies and high school English teachers. Okay, that's fair. But cotton makes me think of sweaty gym shirts and tidy whities i take a billowy pair of linen pants over that any day. Besides, Europe and North America depended on flax for vegetable-based cloth until the 19th century, and then cotton overtook it. Flax fibers are two times as strong as cotton fibers. 
okay, that's a good point. But is the flax that goes into pants and tablecloths the same as the flax that we eat in CD bread? I think so, but it sounds like I should probably call an expert to help sort that out. While flax refers to the plant itself, it also refers to the unspun fibers of the plant. The species is known only as a cultivated plant and appears to have been domesticated from the wild species, Linum biene, called pale flax. I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network and co-owner of The Brooklyn Kitchen, an awesome cooking store in Williamsburg. So Harry, what's the deal with eating flax? Well, Kat, flax seed sprouts are edible, and they have a slightly spicy flavor. In northern India, flax seed, called tisi or alsi, is usually roasted, powdered, and then eaten with boiled rice and a little water and a little salt. It's also used in sabji curries. Oh, I love curry. So are the seeds edible too, or just the sprouts? Oh, the seeds are totally edible. Um, but if you grind them first, it unlocks a lot of its health benefits. Flaxseed meal is much more readily digested than eating the whole seed. And although flaxseed meal contains all sorts of healthy components, primarily there are three of them that are important. Omega-3, essential fatty acids, lignans, and fiber. The omega-3 fatty acids are the good fats that have been shown to have heart-healthy effects. Two tablespoons of flax meal offers 2,430 milligrams of omega-3s. Lignans have both plant estrogen and antioxidant qualities, and flaxseed contains almost 80 times as much lignin as any other plant's. Flaxseed meal is also high in dietary fiber, which contains both soluble and insoluble fiber. It's a powerful, natural cholesterol controller. That is a lot. So based on all of that, I am assuming that flaxseed meal must be huge in the health community. It absolutely is. And we have people coming into the Brooklyn Kitchen talking about flaxseed and flaxseed oil all the time. Often they look like they're coming straight from yoga class. <laughs> but they're not just jumping on the modern bandwagon. Flax is thought to have been cultivated in Babylon as early as 3000 BC, and in the 8th century, King Charlemagne believed so strongly in the health benefits of flaxseed that he passed laws requiring his subjects to consume it. Wow, you know, I'm glad that we have separation of flax and state now. <laughs> Me too, although perhaps we should all be eating more flax. Experts today say that we in fact have research that backs Charlemagne's claims. So you don't have to eat it on its own. Flaxseed meal, like the one that Bob's Red Mill makes, is freshly milled and preserves natural oils and nutrients. You can add it to bread, pancakes, muffins, bars, cookies, all sorts of things. I like putting flaxseed on my oatmeal in the morning. So one other question I have for you. Um, what about flaxseed oil? Well, I love flaxseed oil. It has a really great nutty flavor, and I love to put it on salads or put it into marinades, though my number one use for flaxseed oil is for seasoning cast iron cookware. It polymerizes, which creates that great nonstick surface that we all love about cast iron. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that settles it. Flax is a wonder ingredient that we all should have in our kitchen. Thanks, Harry. I'm here with my longtime friend, Elizabeth Taylor, who is an animal-loving vegan food blogger and not a diamond-laden actress. Elizabeth runs her blog, VLGL, a collection of vegan, low-glycemic-load culinary creations. Elizabeth, can you tell us what vegan, low-glycemic-load means? Hi, Kat. Of course. 
Firstly, veganism is a lifestyle by which the practitioners avoid use of all animal products, particularly where food is concerned. Veganism is becoming increasingly well-known in this day and age. The glycemic load part is a little less mainstream. The glycemic load is a measure of how a food will affect the blood sugar of the person who eats it. Foods that have a high glycemic load are things like processed carbohydrates and sugary sweets. I personally practice a vegan, low-glycemic load eating philosophy to avoid inflammation while staying true to my long-time plant-based lifestyle. Great. So what is, um, on a day-to-day basis, what does your VLGL diet look like? VLGL is a whole foods, plant-based way of cooking and eating that emphasizes non-starchy vegetables, whole fruits, nuts, legumes, seeds, and certain whole grains. That sounds reasonable and delicious. So what recipe are you going to share with us? Today I brought to you my go-to grain-free granola recipe. I have always loved a crunchy bowl of cereal in the morning, and while I love to watch my morning cartoons with an enormous bowl of Cocoa Puffs as a kid, my adult self is all about granola topped with fruit and plant-based milk. Unfortunately, even so-called healthy store-bought granolas are so loaded with sugar and grains that they tend to have a moderate or high glycemic load. So, I like to make this grain-free granola for the taste sensation without the blood sugar spike. That's, that's great. Actually, can you develop a recipe for grain-free Cocoa Puffs next? Um, but what makes your granola grain-free? So, no lie, I have actually been daydreaming about how to make VLGL Cocoa Puffs happen, but in the meantime, this granola is pretty fantastic. It incorporates shredded coconut and sliced almonds for crunch, cinnamon and nutmeg for that classic cozy flavor, a little agave nectar for sweetness and to form those classic granola clusters, and for some beneficial omega-3 fatty acids, walnuts, hemp hearts, and of course, ground flaxseed. It is delicious topped with berries and plant-based milk, particularly coconut or almond milk. Thanks to Elizabeth Taylor for sharing her tips for using flaxseed meal. You can find her recipe for grain-free granola at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could possibly want to know about flaxseed meal. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.